and welcome everybody to the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. Join my father, Rabbi Avi Horowitz, and myself, Ayelet, as we discuss relevant and meaningful ideas and topics inspired by the weekly Torah portion. This podcast is not religiously exclusive. No matter what religion you practice, please feel free to join us as we glean timeless Torah wisdom to help us better navigate the world we live in today, or simply put, just to give us something to think about, because that's always really awesome. So let's get schmoozing. Let's get right into it. What are we going to be discussing tonight? Late night edition. Super late night. Hopefully we'll be a little more awake tomorrow. Let's have a short discussion about if um, a lot of people sit down to Pesach, which for most of us really means the Seder, because once the Seder's over, it's kind of like, a seven-day holiday of continuing what we started on the first day. It's not like anything different was really happening. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a unit of seven um, that commemorates the entire exodus from Egypt. It's not really more than that. It's, it's not, we're, not, we're not celebrating other occurrences. Maybe on the seventh day we can say it has to do with the crossing of the, of the Red Sea, but the Torah makes no mention of that, so it's basically the, the seven-day celebration of the leaving of Egypt. And the question is for tonight is, what is that supposed to mean for us? A lot of people sit around, I was about to say, a lot of people sit around the Seder table, and they talk about universal values. Like freedom. Like freedom. A lot of people like talking about freedom. And it's really nice, and, you know, celebrating a people that were taken out of bondage is a nice thing. Um, but is that really the point of the holiday, to talk about freedom? Is that is that really the point? Like, what's the main thing? What do you think the main thing is for us? Is it different? I mean, anybody can sit around a table and talk about freedom. I mean, you know, we can, mm. we can make it as universal as possible, as inclusive as possible. We could invite all different peoples and creeds and religions and talk about freedom. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's about? I would say like bare bones, meat and potatoes kind of thing is, I think is more, not so much about, it's really not about freedom. Essentially, it's really about um, how God, God made us into a nation. It's the birth of the nation. I would say even more than freedom. So you'd say that that's a, that's a particular message to the Jewish people. So if it was just about freedom, which I think freedom is a huge part of it. I'm saying we discussed, remember discussing this at Lens in last year's Seder, freedom and how we ended up coming to the conclusion that the ultimate freedom is being under um, the kingdom of God, so to speak, right? Where we're being servants of God means being someone who, who always is being guided by truth, which is the ultimate freedom. Um, so I think that's a huge part, and to say that freedom doesn't play a part in the Seder would be crazy. But um, I wouldn't say it's it's the bare bones, meat and potatoes of the Seder. I would say that the Seder has a lot more to do with with the beginnings. It's it's like in that relationship kind of realm where it's like God made a promise, and we're talking about this promise throughout the whole Sefer Bereshis, and then some of Shmos, and then comes the fulfillment of that promise, and we're here remembering that God fulfilled His promise to us. That God fulfilled his promise, he took us out of Egypt, we are now a people, we have a relationship, and we have to continuously remember, in every generation, 
that God made fulfilled his promise to us and we are now in a relationship because of that. There's like, that's, that's what, otherwise why remember it every year? We could just remember freedom every year. Why Dafka, why we have to remember how we were slaves and we were in the land. It just, I think it's about the personal experience of being taken out by the God who created the world and is now in a, you know, we are now in a covenant with him. I really think that's what it's all about. Personally, that's what comes to mind when I think about what would be the main part about Pesach. If someone who knew nothing about Pesach were to come and like, you know, what are you guys doing on Pesach? I'd say like, well, it's really, we're remembering how God took us out of Egypt and how that means that we now, so what does that have, to do with us now? have a relationship with him. Because it's, the, it's, the, it's one of the cores of the, it's the cores of our relationship. If, or because he did a good thing for us once? That's like, that's a bit crazy to say that he did a good thing for us once. Everything about it was, was saying from the beginning of Avram and even before with, with Adam and Chava and then Noah and then the whole way through is being guided to this moment and then this moment is the formation of what we now have become. It was a stinky moment. I mean, we were rotting for like hundreds of years. Why is, why is that a crescendo of like everything? It's like, it's very bad. The slavery must have, yeah, like, slavery sucked, but... <laughs> yeah, so, like, what, what do you mean? It's, like, leading from Adam Arishon. What does that mean? Everything, I'm saying, everything, us ending up in Egypt wasn't something that happened, and then God was like, oh, I gotta get you guys out. Like, it, it all, everything, everything God creates is, goes in, in his will, and that's part of it. And then part of his will was to create this whole experience and take us out. And that was, and that must be a fundamental basis to how, to who we are. That's it? Is that enough for you? Is it enough? I'm saying like, you know, there was there was man, the original man, there was Abraham, and then we all became slaves, and then this is the moment where God's going to take us out of slavery because we became slaves. And he's going to, he's going to free us, and we're going to be indebted to him forever. Because... He chose that moment to make us into a nation. <laughs> is that the uh, narrative? That's what we celebrate? I mean, like, what does that have to do with me? Or you, right now? Well, because you're totally taking yourself out of that narrative. Like, you're also making that narrative pretty stinky. <laughs> like, that wouldn't be my narrative. So say it, say it a different way. My narrative would be... God chose people, and the patriarchs before the actual people came into being... And everything about that meant the, creating the, the cornerstones of faith and belief and trust. That's like the whole Avos period is, is this promise and they're all working and they all trust in God and they have struggles and they're all constantly moving forward with this aspiration of the promised land and becoming a people. That's like the whole story of Barathees is Abraham and then Yitzhak and then Yaakov constantly in this dialogue with God about his promise and how they're going to go to the land of, of Israel and how they're going to be a people and they're going to be a nation and I don't have kids and you said I was going to be a nation. It's this whole struggle between you promised and I believe in you, but it's hard and there's this whole thing and then... Well, what went wrong? Something must have gone wrong. I'm saying I, I know that... Well, I mean, we took a detour. I mean, where, 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 what went wrong? I mean, where, you know, you, okay, they're having problems, they're having hard, it's hardships and this and that, but... Okay, then where did a couple hundred years go? 400 years? But 
do we have to do we have to assume that ending up in Egypt for two hundred years meant that something went wrong? No, it's pretty pretty bad. I mean, if if somebody bad said to you, "Well, wrong. what went wrong with the Jews in Europe? They all went to the concentration camps." You're not going to say, "Well, maybe it's not so bad. I mean, it's pretty awful." I mean, the I'm only difference about it not is being awful or not. The only difference. I didn't say it's about it. I'm asking you what went wrong. So, I just don't know if that's a question, like, it's like saying, why do things happen, like, why would that... Don't forget, the difference between the Holocaust and this is that, it, uh, seemingly, you know, hundreds of years before, Afshem told Avram Avinu that something bad is going to happen. So that's what I'm saying, I don't think, like, it's like, well, what did we do wrong? It, it seems like it was part of the plan. It was a fundamental part but of what, how well, it that's even, Well, that's even harder to understand. Why would it be part of the plan? Why, 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 why is it part of the plan? That's a huge question. I'm saying I could think about a couple ways that I would be able to understand that in whatever way that I can, but uh, that's, I think that's a pretty huge question. It's like, why do, why does God do what he do? What he do? He's telling Avram, he's gonna, you're going to have children, and they're, they're going to be enslaved by another nation. Like, who needs that part? of the, like, Why does that have to be part of the process? <laughs> Why do babies have to be in your stomach for nine months? And why does... Because you're saying, because that's nature. Because you can say, there's nature. Uh, once nature was installed, nature has ways of, of being somewhat indiscriminate, even though we, we, we you know, cling to God's existence, but we don't understand things. We say that nature takes its course, and unless a person is saved miraculously from nature, then nature, then the person is subject to nature. No, it's not so much of a nature thing. It's like God, God decided that nine months of process for baby is what needs to be done in order to create a baby. And I think we're talking about the creation of a nation. And you can but say why that why slavery? Why get punished and depressed? Who needs that part? You know, life itself is hard enough. We're living in Israel, and Jacob has twelve children, and then just think about what keeps the people together. I think that's what it comes down to. If you're going to form a people then what's going to keep a people together if not a shared common past? And if everything is fine and dandy in the past, like, oh, we all grew up in the same neighborhood, then that's nice. But I think nothing is as, as strong a glue as, as past struggles that you lived with someone. I think it's here enough. in Israel, it's why everyone's so, like, the army is such a huge <clears throat> thing for people because... I'm saying Avram didn't struggle, Yitzhak didn't struggle, Yaakov didn't struggle. That would, those were individuals. Struggle. We're not talking about people. Why would too. someone who didn't... If let's say they didn't go down to Egypt and they all went to Israel and they were all living in different places in Israel, yeah. So then, where is where does the unity come from? Where like I don't know you and you don't know me and no, who the heck cares? And we're not going through anything similar at all. Why? Well, they could have. What do you mean? They, I mean, they, eventually they would band together. They're as a family, and they would. Uh, how do you ever keep together a nation? You know, they 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 then have to fight off uh, attacks and uh, animosity and adversity and. But if why they would you to work together? They would work but together. But why would you decide to work together and fight off nations? Just be like, I don't want to be part of this. If if there was no, if there was no place where you were in a low place, and then you got saved, then there would be no reason for you to feel like you want to go forward. I mean, I'm not putting it into words. Maybe that would work like for a little it, bit, you know, because it's a common situation they're saved from. Okay, so maybe that lasted a couple months, maybe a year, two years. You know, I don't think you see a lasting uh, 
I mean, it's certainly a shared experience that helps, but it's, I mean, is that a guarantee that they're all going to be, uh, you know, working in unison and togetherness forever because a couple hundred years ago they shared an experience in Egypt? No, I, I think it's more than that. It's, it's like, if you, if you wouldn't have gone to Egypt and there would have been a lot of, all of us there essentially, and then we're all suffering, and then we're all in this low place, and then we get saved, and then there's the culmination of this, do you want to have a relationship with me who I just took you out of this horrible place? I don't see how you could have gotten to that same level of intimacy and clo closeness and creation of the nation if it was just, you know, oh, you know, here's the promised land, like I told you, and uh, now do you want to take on all these obligations and all these ways of living because, you know, I told your, I told your grandparents that we were going to be a chill, so here's how we chill. Here's what you do. Here's what I do. It's like, where's the, I feel like it lacks the whole, um, like if you were looking at it in a chart, it's like if, if you, we wouldn't have gone to Mitzrayim, you wouldn't have hit that low, which meant that you wouldn't have been able to get as high as you did when we get, when we go to Harsinai. If we had just not gone and not been slaves, it would have just been a flat line. And just smooth and nothing particular and maybe something would happen. Maybe not. Maybe I'll decide to become this and come into a relationship with you. It's like if, if you don't, if I don't feel the importance of the relationship, then why would I commit to a relationship? And now that they went through Egypt, now they're all committed? I think that I think they were. I think understanding that the experience of Yetzirah Mitzrayim was such a powerful way to experience God that I think after that experience that was like, I get it. There is a God. He cares about me. This relationship is very, very personal. I'm ready to be part of this. I don't think you come to that place of, of desire and fervor and belief and like enlightenment if you don't, if you, you wouldn't have gone through that. I don't see how it would have worked. So God tells Abraham hundreds of years before that this is going to have to happen because otherwise the whole plan's not going to work. You're dealing with people at the end. Yeah, but it's foretold. There's something that needs to be foretold here. This has to happen, and then um, it's going to it's going to have the best shot for for lasting forever if it happens like this. I don't know. I think it's part of it. Uh, maybe we could add one dimension that I think we miss a lot on, on the Seder night, and I think we miss on Seder in general and in Pesach. It has to do with like a very simple idea, which is along the lines, but it's just a little bit, I guess, sharper, because it brings together a lot of different things. There's a lot of different like themes that go on in Pesach that we repeat a lot, but you know, let's just focus on the matzah, for example. So the matzah is the opposite of chametz. We're, we're told we don't eat chametz on Pesach. And we're told that chametz is destroying some, something to do with Yetzirah. Something to do with... That's the way our Kadmonim explained this idea. We have to get rid of the Yetzirah. And on the flip side, we eat matzah, which is the idea of celebrating a special redemption, a special, a special salvation from Egypt. Um... The matzah takes a very, very, you know, predominant role in the Seder. 
um, even when we had Korban Pesach, it was also an important role. Perhaps it wasn't important as Korban Pesach itself, but it still was an important, it's an important thing. Um, it's, it's the matzah of the geula, it's also the matzah that's matzah. So, one second. Matzah being, matzah is what symbolizes the removing of our ego, but it also represents the bread of salvation and being free and the bread of free people. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's this paradox? Right. Okay. Right. Um, just, just, just one point. But the psukim say over and over that when we talk about Yitzhiyaz Mitzrayim, the, the psukim seem to say, it's not so we should sit around the table and talk about freedom. The, the Haggadah is, barely mentions anything that has to do with the word freedom. But it does say in different ways what the psukim say, which is that Hashem will bring us out, will have brought us out of Egypt to make us into a people so that we will accept Him as a God, so that God will be a God, a God for us, and so that you will know that I am God. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a history going on over here that comes to a culmination in Egypt, which is the beginning of the chosen people idea. The chosen people idea is that once there was a fall of man, let's say it's Adam and Chava, or even something before or after that, maybe it's the Mabul, maybe it's Migdal Bava, we don't know. But there's, there's a moment in time where there need, the, the, the transition of the Bible, of the Torah, is that there needs to be a pe- people that's going to bring the God idea to the world. <clears throat> and it seems to be that the process that made that possible was the process of the B'nai Yisrael going through Egypt and becoming a people and God becoming a God for them, meaning they'll be the ones that will champion the idea of God in the world. They're being chosen to champion the name of God in the world. If it wasn't for them, then the name of God would be forgotten from the world. And since that moment, the Jewish people were um, designated to be the ones that were always there in order to remind the world that there is a God, a only one and only God. And the culmination of that culmination, which is the giving of the Torah, I believe says to us something else. In other words, I think it says to us like a what now kind of thing, because I think that idea of us being, of the Jewish people being a, um, a, a testimony a living testimony, or those that give living testimony to the fact that God exists as a one and only God, is something that also, and this is the part that I'd like to add to it, because I think whatever I said so far is pretty much, it's in the Rambam, it's in the Ramban, it's in so many other Sfarim that I don't even need to name now, that, that this process of going through what, what we went through in Egypt was because there was some kind of a shedding that needed to happen since the fall of man. And the shedding through the, through the servitude, through the slavery, was kind of like an idea of getting back to essential man. In other words, without some kind of a suffering, it wasn't going to be possible for man to get through to essential man because of his um, idea of things. When man had a clear idea of things, so it wouldn't have been necessary. But once man grew into the man with all of these coverings and 
and skins and and uh, trappings. Yeah, casings that surround him and his ego and etc. It became necessary for, for like a shaving down of a man, and the, the, the only thing that does that is suffering. When people suffer, then they are able to, if they're being guided in some way or another, they are able to see the point of the suffering, and then they are able to see the essential point of man. And I think the suffering through the guidance that was eventually to come through Moshe and, and Hashem sending Moshe, and the, the, a little bit of the tradition of the Jewish people that such a thing was going to happen, and plus that the redemption was going to happen, it was enough of a guidance to keep them um, from losing themselves in this tremendous tragedy of the slavery. So the slavery served a, a essentially positive purpose, which was to like perfect a people enough so that they could be the bearers of God's name in the world. They can only be the bearers of God's name in the world if they were um, seeing clearer than man was seeing before then. So it was a select amount of people that were able to see, Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, their, their wives, etc. But then, in order for it to be a multitude of people, the multitude of people had to go through this shaving process where they're able to see clearer than what a normally a person would be willing to see in those days. And what I want to say with that is that since the culmination of that is giving the Torah, that means that the next process is that the, now the way the Jewish people announce to the world and the way they proclaim God's name in the world is through the Torah. So that means when they keep the Torah, this is the Torah is the, is the tool that they're able to use, that they need to use in order to make God's name manifest in the world. So far, what I'm saying is, is pretty much standard. But what I'd like to say is that one second, let's, let's just clear up what you said until now, though. Saying that really the point of, the, of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was because God, God is saying, I need people to bring my name into the world because if, it's, if they, I don't have a symbol, or in this case a people, who is going to represent my name on earth, then I will, not, I will no longer be a tangible presence in this planet with the people. So God chose the people, of the descendants of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and there's this dilemma that after a couple of generations and all these different things, people start creating their own mindsets and they live in different cultures and you start piling on stuff and it's, it becomes almost like the, the tool by which God was going to be expressing his name and glory and goodness in this world is now full of stuff and that needs to be taken away in order to expose what you're saying, you know, bear, bear man or the essential man, which is capable of, of being able to give over and to represent God in this, in this world in a way that is clear and pure and untainted. And in order to do that, we had to go through slavery because it was the suffering, which you pointed out a key word was guided, um, would be able to remove those trappings and those coverings that would be able to really enable us to come out of people who are actually ready to receive the word of God, and to then be the bearers of God, God's name. And you can say... Vice versa, but yeah. Right? Okay, vice versa. In what way? Vice versa? In... No, it, it, the, the, because first, you know, it's, the, the idea is that the people themselves will be a testimony to God. So in other words, people say, oh, in, in at, at least that would mean people say, oh, that's the nation that was like miraculously, like, oh, there's miracles, and like, oh, there's like... And they're, God took them out. And they're saying God did it, you know, and at least their leaders are saying. So, like, those people are, there's become a nation of testi- of t- that testifies to God's mm-hmm. existence, right? Okay. 
Okay, then, then comes the Torah, which is now how do they bring it into the world proactively, not just being recipients of, of, the, of the salvation of Hashem, which allows people to say, oh, I guess God really cares for these people, you know, we don't know why, but, but you know, well, I guess maybe they had, you know, really great-great-great-grandparents that were really mm. good and stuff. So actively being part of the merit Right, that so the Torah is like, how, do, how does a person bring God's presence into the world? And furthering the mission of the Jewish people of mm-hmm. being a testimony to God's existence in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I just want to point out that I think the, the challenge for us is Pes- going through Pesach every year is that I, I think that process continues. In other words, I, th- I think a lot of times we need to ask ourselves, why do we need a Jewish people today? Mm-hmm. Maybe the mission has been done already. Mm-hmm. You understand? Like, it once was, uh, once upon a time, where it seems that the Torah is very clear by telling us these different examples that show how man was able to just like fall off the edge of the planet. They were just totally willing to forget that there was a creator to the universe. And so you see, you know, the entire the flood, the people were willing to go so far as to make their lives so completely devoid of anything spiritual that they just became almost like animalistic. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the world had no merit whatsoever, except for Noah and his children. And then again, you know, the Tower of Babel, which is some kind of a spin-off of that. And then again, Sodom, you know, in different areas of the world where there's just a void of anything spiritual, anything godlike. Mm-hmm. They get so bad that it's just like, it just, it almost self-destructs. Ultimately, the Torah is saying is that when God is not brought into the world through our own consciousness, that part of the world or the world will self-destruct. So God didn't make the world so it should self-destruct. He made it so that it should exist and mm-hmm. so that people should be able to benefit from it and all the goodness of, of, of existence and being alive. So he needed to make sure that that was going to happen. And if it was going to have to happen through making a people, then it was going to have to happen through making a people and these other people. Mm. The thing is, once that, once that was done, I think the challenge of Pesach for us always is, is to say, okay, that was a couple thousand years ago. So the, we can arguably say that the existence of God and the awareness of his existence in the world has been firmly planted in the world. So if people are God conscious they're god conscious they already have traditions that are somewhat monotheistic let's say christian christianity is somewhat monotheistic i guess mostly monotheistic and you have islam which is another couple billion people on the planet which is also monotheistic okay so the word is out so did we do our job like what's it about what's in it for us now like what are we doing that mission anymore or we're just kind of keeping the torah because well we have an agreement we have a relationship with god it's special but as far as the purpose of making God's presence known in the world. Are we, are we doing that? Is that still our mission? Hmm. I, don't think mo- I don't think monotheism is the battle cry anymore, I would say. I think it's just the understanding of monotheism the way we understand it, meaning just because there are other religions, the main ones being Islam and Christianity that believe that there is one God, um, I just, I don't, Right, I don't think that we would define um, the relationship, the belief that God exists and what he wants from us to be the same. And I think that's where it's going to differ and that's where it matters. It's what, what does God want from us? It's not just understanding, you know, everyone, there's, there's one God. So let me put one. it in different words. 
it could be that the even on to the contrary, those people there are those that have said that they claim or they claim to say that they believe in one God, yet their belief that there's one God has not changed their behavior from becoming uh, from from that which is like repugnable to repugnant to, to that which is very lofty right i'm saying i would say it hasn't, that hasn't done that so if it hasn't mm-hmm. done that it gives god a bad name mm-hmm. not in god's name as as uh, what's his name rabbi Sachs wrote a book i think not in god's name mm-hmm. or it's it it almost might even be worse in a certain way it's like it's like it's sometimes like I wonder when people are ignorant of an idea, they're ignorant of the idea. But once they're fed the idea, but the idea is corrupted, so who's worse off? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes right. the world might actually be so jaded to the idea of God because there are so many instances where people have spoken in the name of God and done some horrible things to right. justify all kinds of things by monotheistic religions. Mm-hmm. So it even. You know, it even strengthens this idea that we're meant to use the Torah, especially in whatever we can use in our tradition, to show that being a believer in God is to, in order to create consciousness of God in the world, means to really um, show how that is good, ultimately. You know, that you can show it. It's mm-hmm. good. It's, it's honest. It's anything that we would uh, associate with the idea of goodness has to do with it. And um, if we're still supposed to um, present that and, and spread that idea to the world, well, there's a lot to do. Right. So I think that's what Pesach should be saying to us, really, even today. That this is what we celebrate on Pesach, that we, the mission that we were given so many thousands of years ago is not something that dried up one day because, well, I guess the word's out that God's around. It's really that God's around is not the, the is not the ends of the mission. Right. <laughs> is that you would you would, we we want to be the, the those that inspire the world to want to be God conscious. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different ballgame. Right. And I also want to go back though to your point about the matzah conflict about being both the the symbol of removing of the ego and then also the representation of freedom. Right, it's both of those things, right? Because within the same thing, in other words, it's like two sides of the same coin. It's that the exaltation of the Jewish people in order to become the representatives of God and God consciousness in the world took the form of suffering first mm-hmm. in order to help us like shed all of the uh, chaff of all those generations and thousands or maybe even of years since the, the fall of man, which I'm saying was a process, the fall of man was a process. Mm-hmm. And, when, you know, most of the world was convinced that uh, of paganism and basically self, self-serving paganism. There was no idea of, like, the lofty oneness of God. And in order to recreate that idea in the world, it needed, like, a very abrupt type of uh, cleansing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like I said, guided suffering is makes all the difference because there are many people that have suffered but because it's not guided to where it's going and it's uh, it just certainly doesn't have any history to it it doesn't have any promise to it so usually those people will just get lost and they will succumb to their slavery and they'll just be those they'll just get absorbed into the general population 
fact that the Jews were able, the fact that the Israel were able to maintain their identity is because they came from a stock and a history that they were kind of foretold this and they also knew that something was destined to happen. Mm-hmm. But eventually when Moshe stepped in to lead it, so then it became much more clear to them that this was a real process. Mm. So like making that very practical, like when we're talking about the matzah and the, during, um, during the Seder, it's, you know, when we talk about the bread of affliction, we want to start thinking about um, all those things that we put on as layers that don't serve us, that stop us from being able to really be what you're saying, a central man, the, a person who can really be a testimony to God and also do, do his and her part to bring in the godly presence into this world. Um, and doing the, that constant, like we, we were spoken about it last time, but really doing our best to really make the Seder much more of an active, um, much more of an active, um, I want to say situation, but situation is the word. Just one is experience, yeah. Making it a lot more of a um, meaningful and proactive experience than just going through the motions and tradition and all the things that we do because it's cute and flinging marshmallows at each other and answering the questions. It's really trying to get into the the essence, which is which is hard. I don't think it's one of those things that are easy, and I think it's so much easier to fall into the. Well, I think we always find um, ourselves surprised when we are not able to turn on our spiritual jets and to go from zero to 60 in three seconds when we haven't prepared for it. So it's not surprising. I mean, people can't just walk into the Seder and be like, oh, I'm so spiritually you know, inspired. I mean, they're mm-hmm. not going to feel that way if they haven't prepared for it. Right. Uh, you know. But on the other hand, I also think that it's, it's, it's a good thing to mention, like you were saying before, at the end of the day, Pesach isn't just the Seder. It's seven days of what you said. It's about the same thing. All seven days are about us really internalizing and um, really creating this rock-solid understanding of what our mission is and what we're going to do to really move forward with the mission. So I would say even to those who are stressing out because we really can't go from zero to 100, you know, spirituality level upgrade, super duper, and you're going to get to the Seder and be like, I am so on fire right now. I totally feel it. I get it. I'm on it. I'm getting involved. It's like really, if you're making that the the goal and even like during Chalamoid, even though I feel like a lot of us aren't even used to that idea of like Chalamoid also being <laughs> like. Well, I think the deprivation of what we do by not eating chametz is really supposed to be consecrated into an idea of like, we're trying to shed the physicality. We really are. I mean. If you really be honest, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll, I think we'll notice that it's really the biggest barrier to spirituality. You know, it's like we just went on a vacation. It's like it was getting, you know, getting a little bit, I was getting a little bit irked when we, you know, when the conversation started being like, oh, we, you know, live here, you know, like getting a place, you know, li-. you know what I'm saying? It's like it's a nice place, but like to get like too into it where you like you want to have it. You know what I'm saying? Where you're already like fantasizing about having it. Like you want to have a place there. You want to have a house. You know, you can imagine like the, the luxury of, of, of those who live that type of life. You know, they have places here and places there. And then they go to this beautiful scene of every day waking up to the beautiful blue, aqua blue ocean. And then they do what they want. Like, so what? <laughs> like, where does that all go? Mm-hmm. That's not what we're here for. It's like that's moving in the exact opposite direction. And that's exactly what kind of the Western Occidental life has led us to believe is like so good. It's really not so good. 
it's 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 not good and it's not bad, but it had the tendency to live a very opulent lifestyle. It has claimed more victims than those people that have lived lived very modest lifestyles, as far as like they're weaning them away from the belief in God. I'd say overall, I've thought about this for a long time. I'd say that you know, as hard as it is to say, but I'd say that health, wealth, and prosperity and opulence is really the greatest is really a great much greater threat than poverty and uh, misery. It's just, I mean, we try to rise above it because nobody wants to live with poverty and misery. So we try to maintain our consciousness all the time and don't get lost in the food and the pleasures and other things. Mm-hmm. But the reset button that we're trying to push on, on Pesach is that, just like nobody wants to go through a slavery of Mitzrayim in order to like reset and you know see essentially what we're here for. But So, okay, so let's eat the matzah and <laughs> let's let that do it. It's always better. These things don't happen unless they have to happen. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I understand what you're saying. And I feel like to, and I, I believe that to a certain degree it's right also. But I, I'm having a, a hard time going full send on that one. Because we're also, there's so many Sfarim and, you know, especially most of Sfarim that aren't, you know, are, are always like pleasure and physicality aren't things that are, by definition, anti-spirituality, it's the way we use them, with what intentions, what, it's like going full into that, like, you know, physicality stops spirituality, creates this huge dilemma as to how then we can have so many physical things that we need to do, the mitzvahs and the timing and the clothing and the thing and like this and like that, that are very physical, but yeah, are supposed to be very spiritual experiences and with a lot of meaning. Like, I feel like, what's it called? Um, physicality has always been for us the portal to spirituality. So I'm having trouble saying like, yeah, you know, physicality is the devil. I, I didn't say that. I said that the, it has a tendency to, to entice those people that don't keep the guard up into a life of decadence. It does. This is, you, know, you just I don't think you have to be a great historian to see that. I mean, it's just what it does. I mean, the Torah itself says it. I mean, there's many psukim that do, do indicate that. That with prosperity, people have a tendency to lose the focus. It becomes about a bigger car, a bigger house, a bigger... Look, what's going on today? A bigger wedding, a 500-person wedding, this 25-piece band, and this... And, and people will say, maybe rightly, they'll say, look, I have the money. Why can't I give my daughter a great wedding? And how come we can't buy these suits? And how come we can't go on vacation? And how come we... And, the, and there's no simple answer that says, no, you can't. No, you could. But you have to always ask yourself, are you focused with this? Are you able to be Mikaddish, the Hashem, through those things? Doesn't it become a little harder when it's the full focus is on like, the lacquer on the wall and the trimmings and the 458,000 details about what goes into your house and your car and your vacation and, uh, you know, I, can you still keep a focus? Can you still keep the focus? Like maybe that same person knows what focus on God means if they've ever experienced it. Do they? Can they really honestly say that they're still focused the same while living all that stuff and still, it's not simple. 
I wouldn't say it's simple. <laughs> I've definitely lived through it in my life. I used to be much more of an aesthetic. And then I became much more of a, a gozador, you know, de la vida, for different reasons. Enjoyer of just, life for those who don't speak Spanish. Yeah, no, it just went through. I went that way for different reasons, the way my life turned out. But, um, and, and tried to, you know, see the best of that world also. But I see it's, it's you know, you, if a person doesn't keep their guard up, if a person doesn't maintain themselves consistently connected spiritually in real ways, then the person going into, let's say, a very elaborate vacation or a planning of an elaborate vacation or the planning of a wonderfully beautiful house or the purchase of majors, whatever's, you know, and a lot of food and big parties. If a person doesn't have the consciousness to sanctify those things at the on the outset right when you start you know that's the important like why am i doing this what's the point where is it going you know mm -hmm. if, if it's not there so then the tendency is that it becomes like a derecho, derecho adquirido mm -hmm. becomes like an acquired right and, it, and then it becomes almost it can become meaningless and spiritual less Mm -hmm. just like anything you know we make a bracha before we eat so that the be at the beginning of the eating so that the eating becomes a different type of eating a person can make a bracha and not even remember doesn't even think anything that he's you know just mumbles and he won't think anything it's not a guarantee mm -hmm. so it's a challenge of Pesach it's a challenge it's a challenge of Pesach and I think it comes at the inception of the Jewish people's, uh, let's say, trajectory as a nation because our humble beginnings are, are meant to be always um, the status that we maintain ourselves at. Some, in some way or another, um, very consciously humble. Consciously humble. I like that. Stay humble, people. Yeah. <laughs> We can be prosperous, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just now you have a different type of challenge. If a person is also incredibly poor, that's another type of challenge. I mean, I remember one of the, George Bernard Shaw wrote a play called Santa Barbara or something like that. I remember what it's called, something Barbara. Um, and he talks in that play. I was, you know, made me for the first time think about how, because he takes this position where that he he says like you know poverty is not like a Poverty is not like it's something that you you know just feel mercy for or or pity for. It's it's a crime. Poverty is a crime, in a way, in a sense that people that per, that don't prevent their own poverty or people that promote or continue you know their own poverty are actually doing such a disservice to themselves because it doesn't make you more spiritual or better. It just makes you more miserable. And when people are miserable, they could also be very very distant from anything spiritual. Mm -hmm. That was an important point that we didn't mention i understand that you you know your point about how opulence and luxury can further someone from the main point of it all but i also don't think that it's easy to be a man of faith and uh, representation of divinity when you're living a miserable hard life i disagree with that the way you just said it as some of the most poor people can be the most saintly divine divine people in the world no doubt and some of the you know it's, wealthiest it's because... people can be as well 
Uh, yeah. I I'm think it's saying, always going to be a balance. I'm and... just saying it's what it does to you, right? So, so if a person is like constantly struggling because they're so, so struggling all the time, they have no time to breathe, and they're just convinced that that's what they have to do, and, and that takes the shape and form of like living a totally spiritualist life, yeah, so eventually that person will... He, he won't even have Olam Azel. <laughs> He'll have nothing in the end. That's true. I'm just saying, I think for what I've read and what I've understood about life, I think it's just, it's, it's a greater, it's a, it seems to be a greater um, challenge that usually claims more victims. And if victimhood means, you know, being, living a, a spiritualist life mm-hmm. or a very low spiritual life, very poor spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we got off on a tangent a little bit, but that does have to do with Pesach. And um, the key over here is, to wrap it up, is that Pesach is a time where it's not just being commemorating the idea of being charged with the mission, but it's understanding that that mission is very much applicable today. And that creating the consciousness of God in the world doesn't mean just because we were once, or we were the passive receptive, you know, receptors. Recipients. Recipients. <laughs> so tired. Recipients of, uh, of goodness, you know. Mm-hmm. We have to be those that make the Kiddush Hashem in the world make people want to be God-conscious in the world. Mm-hmm. Because they, people will say, oh, Ashrei Yuladito, wow, look at that person who is so enlightened by, you know, the, by, by being uh, a God-centered person that this is the way they act. That's very important. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, happy Passover. <laughs> Hope no one fell asleep Sleep. while we were talking about yeah. this. <laughs> Energies are low. Energies are low. But anyway, wishing you all a lovely Pesach and... Um, yeah, main words I would say would be here, humility and focus. 